the impressions that you're going to make with those potential jurors starts from the moment they're walking in the courtroom. A hundred percent. So they're picking up, yeah, they're picking up your body language, your demeanor. They're making decisions about other things in their head that are preoccupying them, but they're also trying to determine, okay, do I trust you? Do I like you? And so you're kind of thinking of that as you are developing your questions. All right, good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today we have on the show one of our historic favorite guests who has both had a change of title and also, while not changing her position, has actually become a member of the Maryland Supreme Court. Welcome to the program, Michelle Houghton. Thank you very much for having me. You are most welcome. We always enjoy hearing from you. So I'm fascinated a little bit because my practice is so sort of neighborhood-based that most of my clients are in Laurel or near Laurel, and they do ask me about the ballot measures. Whenever there are ballot measures to be elected, they, you know, and they ask me about the sitting judges, and I always say, yes, please make sure that, you know, you support the sitting judges and that sort of thing. And one of the ballot measures obviously was the name change from Maryland's highest court being the Court of Appeals to the Maryland Supreme Court. And I wondered, is that something that's been in the offing for a while, or, or do you know the history of that change? I'm not sure of the exact history, but I seem to recall the conversation coming up with Chief Judge Barbera. Okay. And did you feel when you met with other judges from other places that there was some confusion at all about, you know, where you fit in in the hierarchy, being the Court of Appeals and that kind of thing? Sometimes they were particularly confused with the Court of Special Appeals. Why was that different from the Court of Appeals? And there's history to all of that, of course. Yes. It makes it easier. I occasionally have tried cases or argued appeals in other states. And so you go to the Supreme Court of North Carolina or the Supreme Court of Wisconsin or whatever it is. And so there was never any real doubt about where you were, whereas the Court of Special Appeals kind of did have a different function there for a while. And it was a different world. And that's a court you served on as well. Yes. Yes. So are you pleased to be a justice of the Maryland Supreme Court? I'll let you know later. <laughs> okay. Okay. One of the things we've chatted about a little bit before, and I was kind of, I always review everybody's kind of CV in anticipation, even people I've interviewed before, and you really have had so many different roles in your career. And I mean, it's extraordinary. And I just wonder how that informs your present job that, you know, district court, circuit court, court of special appeals, court of appeals, now Maryland Supreme Court, do you feel that having had these different roles has been beneficial? I think it's been extremely beneficial and rewarding. It allows me to understand not only each level, but how the systems operate, both directly and indirectly. I've had interaction with a number of judges that run the spectrum in Maryland. So I understand where they're coming from when I'm reading the cold record. And it also allows me to appreciate the necessity for being very patient and listening, because often what is presented to us from the record for purposes of certain review, sometimes it's altered a little bit when people come before us for oral argument. How do you find the communication of the important issues is, I mean, is it 
accurate? Is it effective? Is it variable between parties? How do you find that that comes across? I think it varies according to parties and who their advocate might be. Every month, for example, we review cert petitions, and many of them are pro se. And so you have to be very patient and take your time as you're reviewing them, because sometimes people are not articulating what they need to articulate to cross the threshold for us to either grant it or make another determination. And I think my prior experience with the other, the trial courts certainly assisted me in terms of kind of parceling out what the issues really are. And there's no substitute for having a strong legal advocate in the form of an attorney. But sometimes, for whatever reason, people don't have counsel. And so you're not making the case for them, but you're trying to ascertain what is the issue. Is it enough to? Cross our door, so to speak. And just so our audience understand, pro se means somebody acting on their own behalf without a lawyer. Correct. One of the interesting directions the law has taken in the last year or so, both legislatively and judicially, has been an increase in ensuring that people have counsel in very important situations. So, for example, there's now a law that was passed concerning the availability of counsel to juveniles that didn't exist before. And, you know, I wonder if that has had an effect on the things that you see or whether those things haven't been in the books long enough to have an impact on on that sort of thing. I don't think there's been enough coming before us in that regard, but it's coming. I know it's coming. I mean, it's intriguing because so many of these things You know, you read an opinion, like, for example, there's an opinion that ballistic evidence is kind of being looked at somewhat differently by all courts, in particular, the highest court in the state of Maryland now. There's an array of my guests who are fairly prominent lawyers. My friend Jerry Buting, who's going to be a member of the 100th show, along with you, and uh, and Justin Brown, who represented Adnan Syed, and, and a lot of these people you know, once they're away from the the cameras and that sort of stuff, they're very genuinely concerned that ballistic evidence has been misused for a long time. And I wondered what you would say about the ballistics opinions and kind of how that came to fruition. There's something pending now, so I don't want to get into a whole lot lot of detail, but whenever there's what people perceive as a sea change with us in terms of factors that a trial judge should consider when they're considering expert testimony, recognizing that your gatekeeping function is extremely important. And uh, at least for purposes of appellate review, it's very important that the record reflects that you have identified what those factors are, where the source of those particular factors. So we know that you're in the same bailiwick as the last significant opinion, Roshkin, and then how you have taken those factors to develop your findings. And then as a result of those findings, exercising your appropriate discretion to come to a decision about that testimony or that opinion. It's a very important role. I recognize and appreciate that what the court did about a year or two ago is representing a sea change in some respects or a clarification, as it were, 
of what the factors may be, but I think it's very, very important in terms of us reviewing a record that we know you've identified what those factors are and that you go through each of them in terms of your findings and then your ultimate conclusion. So we don't have to guess, so we don't see that there's some kind of missing link, so to speak. There was a unanimous opinion about so-called CSI evidence and whether defense attorneys kind of missed the boat some years ago, I guess, in terms of not having objected to things. And I thought that was, there was just these fascinating things that occur because of something like a television show that kind of focuses on scientific and quasi-scientific and in some instances, fictional things. And that had to be sort of an interesting thing to confront as well. Yes, yes. I would imagine there's more of that coming. We did a show this summer with Judge Paul Grimm just leaving the U.S. District Court, going down to to Duke University, and I'm a Carolina guy, so I tried to admonish him not to do it, but he didn't listen to me. But it was about, you know, artificial intelligence and so much of what pervades our lives, whether it's sending an email or us doing a Zoom like this, is, you know, artificial intelligence derived or based or run through these things. And it creates a really odd situation for the lawyers and the judges and the parties Because you know something works, you know you can make a cell phone call or send a text, but you really don't know, or at least I don't know how it works. And he kind of admitted that he's learned a lot, but but he didn't. And and I wonder if those things are starting to pop up more in your consideration as well. I think it's it's coming. It's kind of interesting because I don't think we've caught up intellectually with the technology. Oh yeah. That that's going to prove very interesting because at some point you see that, you know, people have created a different kind of dimension for people that no longer exist on the planet. And you wonder, wow, that's fascinating. And then your mind starts thinking, okay, what what are the pluses and the minuses of that? How are we to measure that or assess it? You know, it just very interesting. You know, you may have homework ahead of you on that before you retire. Exactly. Exactly. Doing that show did help because his, his co-author, he'd done an article at uh, in the Northwestern Law Review, their technology review with a professor named Maura Grossman. And she was one of sort of the people who really came up with the best computer mechanisms for doing discovery and evaluating reams and reams of documents and stuff. And it was just funny because, you know, I'm talking to them and I have a cursory knowledge of this stuff. She was quite a brilliant person to talk to about this. And I feel like if I ever need somebody, that is who I would reach out to. But it does unnerve me a little that an awful lot of things that probably need to be considered in cases that are just tried ordinarily really require an explanation we can't give. And no offense to the trial judges, because I think they all try very hard and are very intelligent, hardworking people, but they can't really be expected to be trying myriad different kinds of cases and also understanding exactly how, you know, the cell phone towers work or something, which was and, an Adnan Syed issue of significance. And for purposes of appellate review, how far should we go in terms of analyzing how you, if you've done everything that we've asked you to do in terms of the factors, identifying them, developing your findings as a result of that, coming to a conclusion? How far should we go to hold you, the gatekeeper, responsible for dotting every I or crossing every T, as it were, in terms of the opinion? Say, for example, you know, with the use of guns, 
you know, it just, it kind of makes you wonder how far should it go? So we'll see. You know, infinitely better than I, because I have caused mischief for trial judges for years, but it's not an easy task. You know, there's a lot of asked of you over and above the trials you're doing in day in and day out. And it just can't be an easy thing. I agree. I agree. I used to have beefs with various judges and about the process of picking a jury, what they call voir dire. And, you know, Maryland has a very different voir dire tradition and structure than other states. And it has been, you know, what we're trying to do, and this is really for the audience, you know all this stuff better than I, but what we're trying to do is make sure we get a fair jury, you know, for both sides in every case. And I mean, the truth of the matter is lawyers are competitive. So they're really trying to bias their juries to some degree insofar as they think that's possible. And in other states, the lawyers are allowed to ask all manner of questions and more probing questions and have their jury consultants offering them questions. And in Maryland, it's not clear that you can't ask voir dire questions, but I, I used to ask for years and nobody would ever let me do it. But it makes it for a tricky process trying to put together a fair jury. And I have always felt like jury instructions, what the jury's told after all the evidence is in, the state of the law is, have gotten much more attention, historically speaking, at least in civil cases, than voir dire has. And I wonder if it is another realm that I should be sticking my nose into more. But you also have to end up trying cases regularly in which the voir dire appears to have failed. I did have a case with, and I believe he's deceased now, but a judge I liked in Montgomery County, Warren Donahue, years ago. Mm-hmm. And he had a very cursory voir dire. And then I talked to the alternates afterwards. And one of them had a zillion biases that she came to tell me she wasn't going to rule for my client. My client ultimately did win and got a pretty decent verdict. And gradually, as she examined things with me talking to her, it was one of these things where she said, well, yes, I got rear-ended by this big faker and all this kind of stuff. And yes, I work on products liability litigation for a seatbelt manufacturer. And gradually, I managed to draw out from her that she did have things that inhibited her ability to be fair. And fortunately, she was an alternate not a juror, but those are the kind of crazy issues. That's what the trial judges have so much. I'm not saying appellate judges don't, but you have a little bit more opportunity to consider briefs and and read what went on and hear arguments and and have a discourse with your cohort. And I I just, I I guess this is my holiday sympathy for trial judges. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you look at some of the case law that's come down the past even 10 years, it looks like the gap is widening, so to speak, so that as an advocate, a trial advocate, what do you really have to lose in not asking a question and giving the reason why you're asking the question? Because you don't know what's going to happen in terms of a future appellate decision. You know, is it best to ask it or, or not? It all depends on your strategy. I think it's fair. And I think with the judges, a lot of times there's four sentencings they have to do, and then they've got to hear a DV and, you know, all these kinds of things that occupy their brains. And I mean, I've had a bunch of them on the show and, and talked to them and have very much enjoyed it. And, you know, I think their lot is not an easy one. It is something I have all the respect in the world for you and the others who have undertaken it, but I can't imagine me, you know, having the energy to do it. Well, and you you probably learned one valuable lesson, the impressions that you're going to make with those potential jurors starts from the moment they're walking in the courtroom. A hundred percent. Yeah, they're picking up your body language, your demeanor. They're making decisions about 
other things in their head that are preoccupying them, but they're also trying to determine, okay, do I trust you? Do I like you? And so you're kind of thinking of that as you are developing your questions, perhaps. Also good to have the judge seem to respect you and like you. And so there are times when I have some vigorous disagreement with the trial judge and it gets played out. There's a process that our, our audience has heard a little bit about called a motion to eliminate. And the idea is that if there's something bad that's going to come out about your client that isn't relevant to the case and is prejudicial to the jury, you can ask the trial court to say they're not allowed to mention it. And periodically, there are things that are deemed to be relevant by trial judges. And sometimes you get a little bit heated because you do think it could have a dramatic impact on the case. And you kind of have to shrug that off and become Mr. Congeniality. You know, I get along great with the judge and the defense counsel. And I will just say strategically from my practice, I'm a nice man. I'm a happy person. There are lawyers who are not. And every case that I try is a happy battle. And so there are defense lawyers who are very effective in being aggressive and sometimes kind of mean. And I sort of lead them down this path because I get to go first in arguing my cases of everything's happy, you know, it's Christmas everywhere kind of thing. And either they're obliged to pretend that they're not the way they are, or they are obliged to be the way they are. And the jurors often don't like that. Civility is something the jurors like. Well, I agree. But, you know, you also have to keep in mind there are these ads from all these different attorneys, you know, some appear more balanced than others, you know, so that all those perceptions come to play. So in a sort of realm of reflection, you've been on the appellate courts for quite a while now, and have you seen things change during your tenure on the appellate courts? Yes. And in what way would you describe the change? I think change in terms of trends in society, experiences in in different communities, different neighborhoods, perceptions of people in communities, and their reaction to a whole myriad of things. All of that has changed since I've been on the appellate court. Is it something you think is, for the most part, positive? Sometimes positive, sometimes not. Uh, Sometimes there's the what I'll characterize as an erosion of respect for other people and just simple kindness and courtesy. I would imagine by the time they get to the Supreme Court of Maryland, the comportment of lawyers and litigants is better than you might have experienced district court, circuit court, or even the Court of Special Appeals, because they're kind of there in a privileged manner. You know, you you don't get to the highest court in the state of Maryland as a right particularly. It's got to be something that there's a serious case and there's issues that affect not only you, but others in our society. So I would hope that that would result in them being more respectful. In terms of the advocates that come before us, yes. Those who are stand out above the rest are those who know their position very well, the position of the other side, and they carry on a conversation with us as they are responding to the questions. So we've previously, and I think the last time we spoke was during the COVID greater outbreak. And I've asked several trial judges this, you know, the changes in the world. And and I I presume everybody's back arguing before the Maryland Supreme Court in person now. Yes. Are there changes that COVID has brought about even presently? And are there good and bad consequences to them? 
COVID compelled the judiciary to find an alternative means for conducting their business, for resolving disputes, for making sure that we continue to be a fair and respectful forum for justice. And so different technology was utilized. I remember Microsoft Teams or something like that. Oh, yeah. Then it progressed into Zoom. And then we learned the pros and cons of being before a Zoom audience. (laughs) And we noticed on occasion we had some litigants that felt a little more relaxed in their setting at home than perhaps- In their pajamas. Yes, right. Than perhaps they should have been before us, you know, no judgment, but, you know, just kind of interesting how that all works out, including having your pets interrupt you or or cat walk across the screen. You know, it's just kind of interesting. I have a very barky grand dog at my house right now, so <laughs> I am in my office doing this. <laughs> She would be a good participant and enthusiastic, (laughs) but you know how that goes. Yes, yes. So one of the things that I don't think our audience always grasps, and and it's odd because sometimes I get information about what our audience is, and periodically Chris Avieto, who predominantly does things, will say, we have a really large audience in Scandinavia, which, for example, is an odd thing. And that's because one of my dear friends and law school roommates lives in Sweden and teaches law there. And so she has her class. She's teaching them kind of American law in Sweden because it's useful. So very often everyday law is on their menu. So that explanation and that my my wife's mom is from Finland. And so she has cousins there who also inexplicably take interest in what's going on in Maryland law. But we also kind of seem to have judges who listen to the show, which is sort of odd. I mean, I appreciate it. And it may be because one of their colleagues is on or there's something of interest or they're made aware of it all. But our audience in terms of ordinary mortals doesn't necessarily have an appreciation of the fact that law sometimes is made by the judicial branch. There are changes in law, but often the judicial branch chooses to defer to the legislative branch. The idea is that The Maryland House of Delegates and the Maryland Senate and the Maryland governor put together the law. And, you know, are you able to give us some sort of idea or guidance going forward about when it's appropriate for the legislature to do it and when it's appropriate for the judiciary to do it? A bright line doesn't come to mind, but there's something instinctively that I have found with certain issues. And it requires me to kind of sit back and reflect do a little more research regarding the legislative history and come to a decision. And one of the beauties of having six other minds, you can discuss it and, you know, and people are bringing a different perspective to the discussions. I can't think of a bright line, but it does require a lot of of research and contemplation. I would imagine that is one of the great gifts of being on the highest court of the state of Maryland. You have these diverse group of people, all with different experiences from all over the state, all of whom are really smart and all of whom really care. That's true. That's true. And I I do wonder, and this is something my wife was a lawyer at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for 40 years and retired about 11 months ago. And that's the one thing that I don't think she misses working, you know, and, and has found ample to keep her busy, but you do kind of miss the stimulation of having others around you with different experiences and different processes and different thoughts. 
That's true. And, and I, you know, you're going on the 70 retirement age in a couple of years. That's true. I would imagine that will be one of the things that you miss most. I agree. So sitting in the hammock would, would not be my thing. I would need the interaction. And, you know, and then I, I would also like to talk to other judges, particularly in terms of appellate decisions, because I think there's a measure of sensitivity to the soul of each case that comes before us. And I think about the soul, the essence of that soul each time that a case has come up, but particularly in terms of of opinions, because there's always a soul, a theme that I like to hang my hat on and develop an outline before I'm even thinking about writing the opinion. It's intriguing that, you know, I do follow your opinions a little more avidly than some other people's because we've known each other a long time. And it's interesting because you're in the majority sometimes and you're in the dissent. And it's a passionate dissent sometimes because the issues, I, I love the image of the soul of the case because that's obviously what affects what when you write and when you think. And that's such a wonderful idea. So that means that you like the dog dissent, correct? <laughs> <laughs> you know, absolutely. It, you know, it, it's, you know, I understand that there are hard things and different states treat things different ways, but there are issues sort of a fundamental fairness and I was going to talk to you briefly, I regret to say we almost run out of time about, you know, the distinction between dealing with Maryland laws, the Maryland Constitution, and the federal Constitution. And that's another thing that always lurks in these cases that like, especially on some of these gun control decisions, you know, they end up the Supreme Court suddenly taking them. And, you know, there may have been a history in Maryland and a legislative process and all that stuff. But ultimately, if there's politics lurking in it. Sometimes it makes it tricky. I agree. I agree. And I'm not sure quite what the solution to all of that is. Well, we'll find out. (laughs) I like that. So uh, Judge Grimm is now, I believe, down at Duke University at the Judicial College there. And I wonder if you'd think about doing something like that, because it seems like you have so much information you could impart to new judges and media. Yeah, I have a close relative down there. So uh... I might be interested in that. <laughs> well, that would be nice. Just make sure you read for Carolina and not Duke, okay? Uh, no, I can't do that. Okay. Because that, that person is a Duke alum, so I've oh got to be, yeah. Yeah, I have my, my brother-in-law now deceased was the head of the classics department there for 15, <laughs> 20 years. And so I heard quite a bit about Duke in those days. Well, I regret to say that we have run out of time. It always blazes by when we talk, but thank you so much, Justice Houghton for appearing on Everyday Law. And thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed this. Oh, good. Well, encourage your colleagues. Some of them are reticent sometimes. I have Judge Graff from Howard County coming on in January 30th. Okay. And I'm trying to lurk. You know, various of them get lured on. I think sometimes they worry that, you know, I'm going to be like Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes or something. And How about about Judge Leahy? Love to have Judge Leahy. uh, You know, put the word out. Okay. I, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny because, and this is kind of inside baseball, but getting guests, I, you know, I most, I started with my friends. I did a seminar for the MSBA last year about doing a podcast. And, you know, my, there were five things, call your friends, call your friends, friends, call strangers. They like attention too, and that sort of thing. And that's how it sort of evolved to this being my 100th episode. Don't know if I have another hundred in me, but I'm certainly going to do as many as people are interested in. 
And any suggestions, I, I had Natalie McCherry on last year and she suggested I have Donna Hill Staten on. So I'm working on that. She said, said it would be a really interesting person. She said, Donna. So okay, gonna work on that. She's so busy that it's hard to get her to, to do stuff. But I have a lot of ideas about things and anybody you might hypothetically suggest, please let me know. Well, I just gave you one hypo. I'm on that one. <laughs> Thank you very much. And please have a happy holidays and Merry Christmas. And God bless you and your family. And the same to you. And much thanks to Brendan for helping us out. Absolutely, positively. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.